If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Back in June, the podcast took a knee out of respect for the Black Lives Movement. We opted to postpone our scheduled episode to instead amplify Black voices by asking listeners to take the time to read, watch, or listen to Black voices during the time that they would usually listen to this podcast. Not long after, Jermaine Guillaume contacted me to discuss how we can support Black leaders and organizations whose missions are centered around social justice and social change. This is a conversation that is near and dear to my heart. As I have said before, I believe the nonprofit sector has an important role to play in building a more just world. But we also have to take time to examine and address the disparities that are present in our own sector. Because the nonprofit sector is certainly not immune to disparity, prejudice, or racism, So if we aren't talking about it and we aren't thinking about it and we aren't working to make it better, it's not going to get better. So that's why I invited Jermaine to join us today to continue this very important conversation about how to support black leaders and organizations. But before I welcome her, let me tell you a little bit about Jermaine. She is the founder of Visionary Accounting Group a virtual accounting firm that offers accounting solutions to startups and also to nonprofits. She has over 10 years of accounting experience and describes herself as ambitious, driven, and an avid reader. She pursues her passions with reckless abandon, thanks to the support of her family, her husband, and her children. So with that, please join me in welcoming Jermaine to the podcast. Hey, Jermaine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dolph. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Same here. I'm so thrilled we're having this conversation. And when you reached out to me by email, you had mentioned that a lot more can be done to support Black leaders and nonprofits that support the community and social justice and social change. What support is lacking 
And what changes would you like to see? Oh, absolutely. So I'm sure as most probably know, you hear about in the startup world, kind of like the lack of funding or the funding gap. The same actually exists in the nonprofit world as well. And that's why I draw a lot of comparisons people will see between like the startup world and the nonprofit world. But, you know, just at a high level, besides the fact that these black organizations or those that are kind of committed to like the social change and social justice, you know, we see less funding. And then at a time when you are getting a decent amount of funding, it tends to come with a lot more restrictions and rigorous reporting requirements, right? So we all know that that takes time, right? And then you have it where you start thinking about like infrastructure. And a lot of times there tends to be like less staff, fewer cash reserves. And I'm noticing too, as I work um, in the accounting space with nonprofits, you know, there tends to be a heavy reliance on government grants because they can't get funding elsewhere. And I'm sure, you know, your listeners are probably well-versed in how, you know, how working with government grants can be. And so while I don't like to continue to speak about the problems, I definitely think it's important to highlight what can we be doing differently to either assist these organizations or these leaders of color. I think some of the things that we can do is like commit to recognizing the bias that does exist and calling it out, you know, being intentional about diversity and inclusion, but and not just using it as a buzzword, right? Because you tend to hear it thrown all around. And when you're hiring, you know, black staff or black leaders, putting them in roles other than diversity and inclusion, working on the other side with like funders and philanthropists to educate them about what these organizations need and why their funds are needed, you know, access to professional and leadership development for these leaders of color so that they do know how to navigate this space a little bit more, you know, promoting collaboration so that Black leaders can also have access to rooms that they may have been excluded from, or sometimes it's not even purposeful exclusion. They just don't know, right? Don't know that it it exists. And then I think lastly, maybe just really promoting philanthropy in the African-American community a little bit more, just because sometimes I think that the bias isn't always on purpose. Sometimes it's just the lack of knowledge. And so I think that if we got the conversation going and did more talking about it and more promotion of these things, we might tend to see a little bit more happening. Do you ever feel like some nonprofits are a little too timid in talking to funders about the things that they need support from the funders on? Absolutely. I think that there's this fear of, if I can just get a little bit, you know, so I think for one, there is a huge scarcity mindset in the nonprofit community in general. And so, and that's where I think that whole like professional and leadership development could maybe come in to understanding how to speak to funders, how to ask for what you need, especially as you know, we you, you start getting into the whole conversation about like overhead, right? So not just asking for what you need to run this program, but what about the, the network of the support that you need for the people who are going to be running that program, right? So making sure that you're not asking for just enough, but you're asking for exactly what it is that you need and not being afraid to do so because, I mean, in the words of my mom, like they can only say no. (laughs) And I think we're at a unique point right now in in the history of philanthropy. I think there are a lot of foundations that are really viewing diversity, equity, and inclusion as a priority. But I also think that they do need those organizations that represent communities of color or represent disenfranchised people 
to step up and say to the funders, hey, this is really what we need. If you if you want to help us make systemic change, or if you want to help us change our own our own sector, this is what we need from you. Absolutely. As things have been heightened recently, I've even on like my social media platforms and conversations that I've been having with other nonprofit leaders, I've been screaming to the rooftops, like, be more transparent, you know, talk about what it is, especially now because there is a a heightened sense of awareness and people are listening, right? People are trying to see, where can I get in? You got corporations that have money that they don't know what to do with. Like, now, if there ever was a time (laughs) to be open, to be honest, and to be loud about what is happening in your community, what it is that your organization does in the community, now is the time. And it's interesting because I'll share with you, and you know, I do a lot of work in the LGBTQ community. And early on, I've, I've been in the nonprofit sector for, gosh, about 25 years or so now. And early on in my work with foundations, because early on I was a fundraiser, I remember viewing it as a much more top-down where, you know, where I would think, okay, the foundations are going to tell me what it is that they want us to do, and we'll write the proposal accordingly, and then we'll get funded, and then they're going to tell us how they want us to, to do it, and we'll report back. And it's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm almost embarrassed to say how long it took me to realize that that I kind of had the ability and the and the voice and the power to be able to say to funders, well, you know, the, we know that you're really interested in funding X, but what we really need help with right now is, for example, a reserve fund. And if we had a reserve fund, here's the ways that our organization could be different. And this is where I think it becomes twofold, right? Because I think that sometimes as a black leader you tend to feel like sometimes you might be walking on eggshells. And so you don't want to say the wrong thing. And then it's like you get zero funding, right? I think there really is a, a case of approaching it with this uh, this bit of a timidity, you know, because you're, you're not sure. But I do think that that is also at the same point what holds us back. And so I absolutely agree with you. And I think it's really important. And that's why I always think about, you know, knowing your numbers and really knowing your organization inside and out, because when it comes time to applying for these funds or going after these grants and having these conversations, you need to be well-versed about what it is that your organization needs. You won't have that level of information if you guys aren't doing the proper data tracking and internal work before you go, you know, looking or searching for funds. Right. Absolutely. And from your perspectives, I know you're also an accountant, like what are some of the important things that organizations should be tracking so that they can have these diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations with their funders? Well, the main thing I feel like, which is kind of odd because you would think that people were tracking these things, but you'd be surprised that most organizations don't know how to quantify their impact. And I think that kind of above everything else usually is like one of the first things that a funder was going to want to know, right? They want to know what problem is your organization solving and then what have you done, you know, thus far. And so it's, Super, super important to quantify that. But then also, you know, start thinking about your internal needs. What are you managing as far as restricted versus unrestricted funds? You know, what is your cash reserves looking like? Are you strapped for cash? Is cash flow kind of tight? Knowing and understanding also your workers, right? And how it is that you are splitting them up on these projects and whether or not these projects that they're working on are profitable to the organization. And just having a keen sense of awareness that, 
it's not a set it and forget it kind of thing. It's one of those things that is ever evolving. And so while one metric may be important this time around, it may not be important next time around. You know, quantifying your fundraising efforts, you need to be able to know, like, maybe that gala that you put on every year, even though you do it every year, maybe it just doesn't make you any money anymore, you know? And so I think it's really important to... So after you're doing these big fundraisers or these events and things like that, being able to then go back to the table with your team and say, okay, how did we do? Because that also sets the premise for what you do the next year, right? We have to get out of this mindset of doing it because that's how we've always done it. And I find that in this sector specifically, there is a lot of doing things just because that's how we've always done it. Absolutely. I'll share with you one of the things I've been surprised at over the last few years is I've started to have some conversations with funders. I think oftentimes we're willing to have the diversity and inclusion conversation, but then the piece we leave out is the equity conversation because we're a little uncomfortable with that. And so I've been a little surprised over the last few years as I've talked to funders and I've essentially said to funders, you know, there are a lot of nonprofits that are really underpaying their staff. And so if they really strive for diversity and inclusion and they have a diverse staff, but they're underpaying all of their staff, guess which communities you're impacting by that underpaying? It's kind of like a cycle, right? And even with that, like, I'm just coming to realize that either it's a severely underpaid or underqualified staff, or it's like volunteers. And of course, when you think about nonprofit, you think about helping and volunteering, but there does come a point, especially as it relates to infrastructure, where if you do not have the proper staff, your organization is not sustainable and it will not run properly. And so it wasn't until, because I'll be honest, like I had never really heard people speak like positively about like working for a nonprofit or entering this sector. And so there was always this kind of mentality of scraping to get by. They usually can't pay their people and things like that. And so when I actually got into this space, I'm like, okay, a lot of the stigma is really because some of us are just not one, not operating properly not utilizing the funds that we do have properly. And the other thing is like, let's be more open. Let's get out of this scarcity space and talk about what it is that we really need to be better because some of these nonprofits are, you know, they're managing million and billion dollar budgets. So for some of them, it is not the case that it's scarce or it's not the case that they're operating with the scarcity mindset. But I do think that, you know, it is important that the knowledge gets spread, that we share that information and that, we stop thinking about, yes, it is a nonprofit. And I know there's a lot of controversy around whether you should think of it like a business or not. But in ways, when you start thinking about how you should run it or those internal aspects, I think that we have a lot to learn. And I think that there's a lot that we could take from the for-profit side that would at least let us run the internal operations a little bit better so that we then can serve the people better as well. I am right there with you. And it's interesting. I feel very similarly. And as I think about the inequity issue in nonprofits, and I think about my own career, because I guess I do now have a for-profit consulting practice, but my entire career has been in the nonprofit sector because it's nonprofits that hire me. And so as I think about my own career, the inequity starts really early. And and I've given this example um, in some speaking engagements that I've done. So my brother and I were in college at the same time. My brother was an engineering student. And he had he did an internship and at his internship, he was paid like and this is this is the early 90s or late 80s or something like that. Um, you know, he he was paid twenty three dollars an hour at his internship. So a rate that's over like forty seven thousand dollars a year. And he's not yet got his degree when he got out of school. 
He was clearly expecting to make more than $23 an hour because that's what he got paid before he had a degree, before he had the credential, before he had any experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm three years younger than my brother. I start college in 1990. As I'm in my last year, I'm doing an internship, but I'm a social work student. So social work students don't traditionally get paid for their internship. So I graduate with my social work degree, and I'm offered a social work job at $18,000 a year. And I'm thinking, I used to do this for free. I hit the lottery. I made $18,000 a year, whereas my brother probably made four times that when he got out of undergraduate. So I also feel like that inequity starts early in our sector. So your first nonprofit job, you're making significantly less than what someone in the for-profit sector is making. And then, you know, because we also know that income compounds over the years, inequity just continues and continues and continues. That is, wow. Like, but I am just not shocked. And as crazy as it sounds, that is still the case today, right? You know, so what's important too, when you when you raise that issue is like, because then you get into the topic of employee morale, right? So if your employees are being significantly underpaid, I mean, how are they really showing up to work? Are they really doing their jobs? Like, you know, I give this example like over and over, but when the very first controller job I took in the nonprofit sector, I was completely overwhelmed and like, I just couldn't believe what was happening and going on. And like, they had a full blown accounting team and people were underpaid. People didn't really know what their job were. People were doing other people's jobs. And it, it was just so much chaos going on. But the morale was so low because people just felt not only underpaid, but then also underappreciated, right? And so I, I think that is super important that we understand some of these organizations are like grassroots, right? And so maybe you don't have it, right? But I think it's really important to communicate with the people that you're working with, but also appreciate the work that they're doing because nonprofit work is hard work. I always say that it's hard work. You know, a lot of people get into this stuff because they feel, you know, they appreciate and they have a, usually they have some kind of personal attachment to maybe the mission and things like that. And so, you know, you don't want to turn people away from this type of work. So I think it's really, really important for leaders to understand how to hire, who to hire, and how to appreciate your staff and also how to pay them. Yes. And part of the conversation that I have often had over the last few years with executive directors and boards is many of us see this. And like, for example, when I talk about that inequity cycle, if you don't pay your interns, then they have a much lower salary expectation. Those of us that are now on board, those of us that are executive directors, we have the power to change that. We we can say, okay, from this point forward, we're always going to pay our interns $12 an hour. But guess what? If you're paying interns $12 an hour, you can't pay any permanent staff members $25,000 a year because they're going to be making less than your interns did. But, you know, but we, we as executives, we as board members have the power to change it. And I think that that's the conversation that we have to have more because I, I get this notion that people think that there isn't anything that they can do, right? And that there's just this feeling of stuck. But then when you carry that, that kind of aura, that kind of mentality, you have the top-down approach, right? So if you feel that way, you know it's going to trickle down to the people that are under you, you know, and just keep, it'll just be a never-ending cycle. And we know that nonprofits are vital to the community. And so we can't bear losing you, right? So we have to figure out what is it that we can do to make sure that you have the tools and the resources you need to run your programs and but not only run them, but then also deliver them, right? So, and that that's twofold. So it's making sure that you have the people in place to support you, but then also the tools and resources to then go out and do that work in the community. Right. And I also feel this way 
about diversity and inclusion as well, and that those of us that are executives or those of us who are on the board, we have the power to change diversity and inclusion in our organization. It does feel to me like if you're an organization and you're in a community that is 48% white, but 80% of your workforce is white, you've got the power over time to change that. Yeah. Or, you know, I think about it too, where um, I was having a conversation with a fellow nonprofit colleague and she's in fundraising and she was saying like, there's been a lot more push to like, you know, you have these annual events where the funders come and the philanthropists and, you know, the whole given the presentation about like what your organization about, like what about drawing more, you know, parallels and having the people in the community that you actually serve show up, introduce them to the people who are funding this thing. Because to your point, if everyone who or the majority of the people on the board or on the leadership team are white, but you're serving in a predominantly black community, how much of what of the issue that you're really that you're serving are those that are leading going to really understand, right? If they don't come from that. And so I think that if we can do a better job of also educating, then you might see more funding coming through because it's like, while they may not necessarily have experience with that issue, if they can see it, if they can feel it, if they can know more about it, they may feel more inclined to support it. Absolutely. It's kind of that mantra, nothing about us without us. Yep. Yep. Based on your experiences with nonprofits, what are some of the things that nonprofits should be doing to build a more inclusive workforce? Well, I think the the first thing that you can do is hire hire more more black people or hire more people of color and also I think too if you even take it a step back we want to look at what are the requirements right because I think sometimes what we don't realize is that the bias sometimes lies before you even get to the point where someone is sitting in front of you to be hired right so what is your application process like is there an underlying bias there you know so checking those things so that you're not even excluding people of color before they even get in front of you right and so i think that is really important when you check that at the door i believe that you'll begin to see more you know more people of color into the space but then also when people of color get into this space, there's a lot of talk about there is really isn't like a, a career trajectory, right? Or there really is no like career development. And so you have people who come into this space and they're a program leader for 50 years. Like you have to make sure that you are pouring back into your people. You know, there needs to be more continuing education. There needs to be more investment put into the people that are working for these organizations, because then I mean, really, it helps the organization, right? I, I feel like with, sometimes people tend to think like, oh, we're pouring all of this out into the people. But that then gets goes, comes back to the organization twofold. And so I think that, that is a, a, that's where we need to start. Can we unpack some of those systemic issues? And so like one of the things that I think about, I know a lot of nonprofits have a strong bias for promoting internally. But if they don't have a diverse workforce and they're promoting internally, they're also not going to have a diverse management or d- diverse senior leadership. What are some of the other structural issues in the recruitment process that we as organizations need to be thinking about? I think we want need to think about education requirements. That is going to be, you know, a, a big piece of that. And not to say because, you know, there has to be some qualifications to do a job, right? So, you know, we want to be be mindful of that, of course. But I think the 
the main thing that comes to mind really is like, what are those education requirements? What are those experience requirements, right? You hear the jokes about college students who come out of college and they're like, when I apply for a job and they're telling me, you know, it's an entry level job, but I need X amount of years of experience, but I just I came out of school. Where's the experience coming from? So just making sure that when we start looking into the background and when we start looking into the education, like that we aren't so small minded or so strict or rigid that we're cutting off a huge portion of people that could potentially apply for this job and begin to make the workforce more diverse. You know, and one of the things I've worked with a couple clients on over the last year is in their job descriptions to actually break out in different sections, minimum required experience or qualifications and then preferred qualifications and experience. Because here's one of the things that data shows us. Those of us like myself who have more privilege will look at a list of, if it's all jumbled together, a list of things and and we'll see preferred or we'll go, well, yeah, maybe I don't speak Spanish, but I'm going to throw my hat in anyway and see if I get it. Whereas people who have experienced less privilege in their life are likely to look at that jumbled list and say, well, I've only got eight of these 12, so I'm not going to apply. Whereas if you can go down the minimum and check them off and go, okay, yeah, I meet every one of the minimums, I'm going to apply. It makes a big difference. That is so true because I have been there before too. Like, you know, I've looked at job applications and it's like, you know, if I don't check off the majority, I automatically have counted myself out. Like I've done that in the past. And so that is such a a key thing that you brought up. And I think that even goes back to, like you said, where a lot of these things start early. So like when we're, you know, when we're even applying for these jobs, like understanding the difference between minimum and preferred qualifications and also understanding that if you don't meet everyone, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are out of the race, right? You know, I now have, you know, listen, apply anyway. If they say no, you tried, right? And so I think it's really important that difference is made. Like that, that is a huge, uh, that's a huge point. Yeah. The other thing I've noticed, and I actually was working with an organization recently on this. I don't do a lot of HR consulting, but I was working with an organization recently on this. A lot of job postings will just say, you know, EOEs, like equal opportunity employer. But I've noticed that a lot of organizations, including some, you know, pretty big businesses like Google and Amazon have kind of created custom equal opportunity employment statements where they really express what their values are. Not just we follow the law, big whoop, you do what's minimally required. Right. No, I I really do agree with that because I think as also when we think about the type of climate that we're in now, like a lot of these things are truly important to people as they're applying. Right. You hear people always talk about like the millennial workforce, like they want to work for organizations that they know care. You know, we want to know that this organization cares about my life. Right. And so, you know, making that statement alone says to me that you even gave it some thought to put that there. Right. And so. I think we have to get out of the mindset of just keeping it so standard and so strict and straightforward that we don't allow for there to be any like finessing. One of the nonprofits that I worked at, what I noticed internally happened too, is that there were a lot of like hiring of your friends or hiring of people you know. And so, you know, some people were counted out before they even got a chance, but you're, you're posting the job though, because you know, you have to do that. Right. But you already have someone in mind, but this is where also those having the proper infrastructure comes into place, the proper checks and balances. And that's where I say, like, I do believe that the nonprofit can learn a thing or two from the for-profit sector because things are just really relaxed. And I think that if things were a little bit more strict, we'd have a little less 
you know, of that finessing. So, you know, I do a lot of interim executive director engagement, so I'm I'm not giving anything away about a client because I've done enough of them that no one will be able to pin down which client this is. But I was doing an interim executive director engagement. And what I would notice is we would post a position and then the hiring manager would come to me as the executive director two days later and go, Dolph, I found the perfect person. And I literally would be like, you found the perfect person. You just posted the position. What do you mean you found the perfect person? And they would go, oh, well, no, this person has this and this and this. And I was like, this was an organization that did not have a policy that said, as an example, non-exempt positions must be open two weeks. Exempt positions must be open four. There was no policy like that. And so pretty quickly, I was like, you know, we need some recruitment policies because it is this, oh, I have a friend that needs a job. But then the other thing that would happen is that person would get hired, but it was just a friend who needed a job. And so when they found the job they really wanted, they left. You know, so the hiring managers that did that often had really high turnover. They were doing things for their friends, but not doing things for the organization. Right. And what I've noticed that in that a lot of those cases, too, the person tends to be not the right person for that job as well. And so I think we just have to stop treating nonprofits like our own personal playground and really understand that these places are vital to the community and that also how you run the organization in some cases goes hand in hand with whether you get the proper funding. Right. And so we want to, you know, like one of the things that I've been really, really adamant about with the organizations that I work with is making sure we have our ducks in a row. We have policies and procedures. You know, we have the right things so that there is no reason. If they say no, it's for something else. This whole climate has also made me, you know, even heightened because I know that there are more rigorous reporting requirements in some cases. We got to make sure our stuff is is extra right, you know, just to make sure that we get past those doors. And so I think that we have to make sure that we are not just, you know, lollygagging or treating it willy nilly and really making sure that we are treating this as a real organization as it is. I love that. I think that's part of the message around all of this and especially around diversity, equity and inclusion is we have to take it seriously. And if we don't, we aren't going to see traction. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to see these organizations closing their doors, right? Because then think about all of the people that they are supporting and they are helping, right? And so that's the piece that I think about. So it's like, if we don't take this serious, these things have harsh consequences, not only for the organization, the people that work for it, but then also the community that this organization is helping. And so we need to be very, very mindful of that as well. Absolutely. Jermaine, I am loving this conversation, but I've got to make sure we have time for an off-the-map question because in addition to being committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, you're an amazing human being, and I, and I want listeners to get to know some additional things about you. Now, in preparing for our conversation today, I learned that you apparently have a certain claim to fame when it comes to singing, and I'm hoping you can share with us what that is. I guess I've had a, a little bit of a few. <laughs> Um, but I went to, I grew up, you know, in a church singing, but then I also went to a performing arts high school here in the New York City. And so I have been singing and traveling more in my, my, my younger years, <laughs> but I sang back up for just about all of the American Idol winners. I sang at the Glamour Music Awards before. Um, I've done a couple of concerts here at um, Carnegie Hall and jazz at Lincoln Center. <laughs> wow. Okay. My goodness. So multi-talented. That's really incredible. Yeah, <laughs> you can say so. <laughs> Jermaine, thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, we did not talk with Jermaine about her financial services today. But if you would like to learn more about her and also her company, Visionary Accounting Group, 
then check out her website at visionaryag.com. And make sure that you check back, because Jermaine will be back on the show in a few episodes to discuss common financial mistakes that nonprofits make and how they can avoid them. So, Jermaine, thank you so much for reaching out to me, and thank you for being willing to come on the show today. I'm so grateful for what you shared. Thank you for having me, Dolph. This was a great, great conversation. If your organization is looking for a virtual accounting solution and is committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, it would be a great idea to reach out to Jermaine. If you missed the URL for Jermaine's company, Visionary Accounting, then hop on over to our website, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. You will be able to find that link there, as well as a full transcript of today's episode and time-stamped highlights. And since you're already there, please take a few minutes to fill out our listener survey. It's just 10 questions. It'll take you three minutes, and it will help us make sure that we are providing you our very best content. And while you are there, check out our planning page to learn more about recession survival planning. We are at a very unique point where I actually don't believe it makes sense for most organizations to create a three- or five-year strategic plan. Right now, if you want a solid plan that will help your organization thrive during the recession, you are probably looking at a 12- or 18-month tactical plan. So be sure to check out that page at SuccessfulNonprofits.com if you think it might be able to help you. Now, if today's episode spoke to you, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast streaming app of choice. This helps more listeners find us and helps us share tips and ideas with a wider community. That, dear listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.